Hello, exchangers. Welcome to episode three of the Dialogue Exchange podcast. Before we begin and before we take you and your mind on yet another journey, I'd like to take a few seconds to thank you for all the support and most importantly, feedback we've been getting from you. Feedback is the only thing that is going to help us get better and help us deliver insightful content that you truly want to listen to. So what do you want us to explore? Who do you want us to chat with? Where in the world do you want us to go? Let us know in the comments below and keep it coming. Today, we're bringing the Education Reform Roundtable to you. The Education Reform is the name given to the goal of changing public education. But why are we recognizing a need to change it? While the world and what it demands from us is changing, as Sir Ken Robinson says, we need to start teaching education as a human process rather than an industrial one. Teaching and learning is an art form and one that continues far beyond our years in school. Great teachers know they have to cultivate curiosity, passion, and creativity in their students, but do our systems make room for this? I'm by no means an expert on this topic, so I decided to reach out to four women who are and who've committed their time and effort towards reforming education, one step, one student, and one school at a time. In today's episode, we talked about the ethics of care, how everyone, teachers, students, trustees, boards, have an imperative part to play in a reform. We spoke about role modeling, the difference between bullying versus being rude and mean, and how to handle that and the role choice and empathy play in education, among many other topics. So my fierce exchangers, let's gather our thoughts and dive right into it. Let's start off with introductions, learning a bit more about who you are, uh, and then we can take it from there. Okay, my name is Najwa Zabian. I'm a teacher with the Thames Valley District School Board. I'm pursuing my doctorate in educational leadership at uh, Western. And I also write poetry that's uh, empowering to anyone trying to find a voice. My name is Charlena Russell, and I'm a musician, songwriter, and music teacher with um, my own studio, Russell Music Teaching Studios. And I've been teaching for the last 15 years and um, writing songs about existentialism and empowerment. I'm Carolina Miranda. I am an educator with the Waterloo Catholic District School Board. Um, where I also work with the Equity, Diversity and Learning Committee. Um, I also have a nonprofit called Feminine Harbor, which is focused on empowering women and into taking leadership positions in whatever areas they are pursuing mm -hmm. through storytelling. And I am uh, almost done my Master's of Education. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> Um, my name is Melanie Van Elfen, and I am a mom. I'm going to do that first. Um, yeah. Of three, uh, all with the Catholic School Board, and I am a trustee with the Waterloo Catholic District School Board. Um, everyone has a purpose for being there, so I ran to be a trustee with the board just basically to be more involved and to show my children how um, being involved in that type of environment can have a positive impact on their student life. So when we kind of reached out to you to join the podcast, we spoke a bit about the education reform. Let's start there. What does the education reform mean to you? There's obviously a lot being covered in the media today. So what does it mean to you personally? And, and what sort of strides are you making in your role to address it? You know, I've been really sort of questioning or wondering, what is the role of education? Like, what are we all in education for? And then one of the definitions that came up is that the responsibility of school boards is student achievement and well-being for of all students. Mm -hmm. 
And I personally, this is my view, first and foremost, I'm, I'm concerned about my students, but I have two daughters going through the system. And I really do feel that we're very heavily focused on student achievement, right? but not That's so true. much in the well-being part. Yeah. And we're mm-hmm. starting to, that's starting to swing again, but the well-being, even with staff, what does that look like? What does that mean? And based on the numbers that came out recently from you know the school boards in Toronto and, yeah. and the rates of expelled students mm-hmm. of one segment of society, it doesn't seem to me that we're really doing all that great on the well-being. Mm-hmm. I think there's a huge disconnect between uh, what's at the policy level and what's actually put into practice. I think we're very good at writing the right things and using the right terminology, saying that mental health is important, students' well-being is important. But when it comes down to it, especially at the grade levels where students have to write standardized tests, that is gone because all of the focus is on getting higher marks so that we can increase our educational capital so that we can bring in more people and it's it becomes an economy at the end of the day and it's at the expense of students but if you read those policies on 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 mental health or on um, inclusive education or equity they're amazing you mm-hmm. read them and you think this is perfect mm-hmm. uh, how you know how has this been written for a while and and nothing or only a small portion of it is being done now so i think that gap or disconnect between what we know and what we do with what we know is it needs to be addressed mm-hmm. at the classroom level at the school level for students and for staff i'm a little bit um in a juxtaposition because i teach but i have my own studio so my focus much with the ex- existentialism is that mm-hmm. um I have one student in front of me, and my goal is to bring out in them exactly what inspires them, and then cater my lessons to exactly what makes them tick and their learning styles. And um, I think that that's uh, an advantage for sure, because I'm not trying to cater my lessons to a large group, but I also really enjoy um, being a support for students. and I've had experience where I've, you know, been there for students outside of the classroom, outside of a lesson, um, with the parents' permission, of course. I think, you know, good job so far, but definitely we can continue to maybe have, like, smaller pods of, of classes or different learning styles and not Absolutely. just one way that everyone has to try to fit into that box. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder how that can be expanded to a larger um group of students and I think the way I've seen it all through my education it was done in a way that was very focused on like what Carolina was talking about the achievement we used to have like set one set two set three and if you were in the third set that's where you kind of are not the strongest at a subject and you were made to feel like you need a lot of room for improvement and a hand-holding and you felt so inferior to the students that were in set one who were like the top-notch, you know, go-getter students who were literally like put on a pedestal. So I wonder if we have any insights around how can we expand that kind of model in a way that's more productive and less focused on achievement and like playing on that ego of being the best. I can understand how people have that perception. Um, But I think being a trustee, you get to see a lot more of what's going on behind Mm -hmm. the scenes. The well-being part of of that strategy is a huge focus of the Ministry of Education. And I know um, 
for our board, it's a, it's a very big focus going forward and great leads who actually go into classrooms and have those discussions with, with each school and as many classrooms as possible. My, my role that I hope to achieve as a trustee is to make sure we're sharing those positive um, stories and showing how it's being reflective in those students' lives and not focusing so much on the media. Because you can't talk about student well-being without talking about teacher well-being. Mm-hmm. And in the first year, they were like, well, but that's where we're focused on. And this year, I was really happy to see that they finally understand that we're an ecosystem, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you can't mm-hmm. just expect the kids to be happy if your teachers are not being cared for. And just to kind of answer your, your question, sort of like tying from what Melanie was saying to mm-hmm. what you said, Trishala, and I keep bringing this up in every meeting that I go at the board office, we need to really apply an ethics of care. Uh, Nell Noddings is the philosopher behind it, and the ethics of care is one of the um, main philosophies in education, really. It's, it's, it's something that every educator should be familiar with, mm-hmm. and I think we have enough literature on it right now that it's time we take that very seriously and we start looking at it. How can we how can we apply this into the classrooms? And not that we we already do so yeah. much of it, but I think we almost have to do it systemically. So, for instance, in my classroom, I have we, we have to level students. We have to grade them. I mean, it's a you know we have accountability, so we have to give them level one, level two, level three, or level four, and you have a report card to be accountable towards that at the end mm-hmm. of the each semester or each term. But in my classroom, I'm starting to change that language with my students where I tell them the level four student, which is that one that, you know, is at the top. They, the language that I use in my classroom is, well, then you're responsible for this classroom community with me. If you're a leader at that level, then I expect you to be a leader to your friends. So you're going to have to teach little, you know, little Johnny Mm -hmm. to read when I'm busy with little... um, I don't know, little Selena, you know? So you're going to be sharing your skills with, and you create an ethics of care within that little community Mm -hmm. and changing Mm -hmm. the, the way that the leadership, I think it's in the leadership, but in my class, we, we say the level one is a seed. You know, it's not that you don't have a potential. You do. You just need to be nurtured. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Level two is a little sapling. Oh, we can work like, so you can grow further. Level mm-hmm. three is a full mature tree. But level four is one that has the fruit tree. So if you have fruit tree, then you can you can seed the, the class with me. So just changing the metaphor, just changing the way we look at the silos instead of silos, looking at it as a continuum because there's a lot of silos in education. Does any of that communication get shared with parents? Yeah. how you teach that yeah. to your students just because I think if you teach that to your students if parents know that you're teaching that way to the students it makes it a lot easier for mm-hmm. the students to understand what's happening and yeah. then yeah for sure support your your way of teaching them oh yeah yeah absolutely I think just as a board or as a as almost like as a community we have to start questioning ourselves in what is the role of a leader from the littlest leveling in a grade one class to the highest level as in the director of our board. It's amazing. It gets rid of exactly what you were saying, like the quote-unquote hierarchy of, of uh, intelligence. Absolutely. And it becomes less about, oh, well, she's better than me or he's smarter than me. Mm-hmm. And it's more about, okay, well, we're a team and everyone has different strengths and we're all going to work together and no one's going to get left behind. 
It works. It's yeah. work. Well, it's in its time. <laughs> <laughs> it's me. But it's interesting. If you look at the world leaders or leaders in any kind of organization, there's leaders. there are leaders who lead through power or mm-hmm. authority, and then you get leaders who are servant leaders. So mm-hmm. their leadership is by and what they do to serve people. And that doesn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. We start from the youngest age possible. That's how you nurture that leadership within a student. You can't expect to teach them a certain way and then once they graduate and they want to go and work in an organization, all of a sudden they know that leadership means that you're working towards something. If throughout their K-12 education and then when they move on to university, it's all about getting the highest mark, then how do you expect that to just go away? Mm -hmm. How are we preparing our students or our future leaders Mm -hmm. to be actual leaders who are making a change, not just leaders by title. Mm -hmm. Um, That that would make us reconceptualize the way that we write our curriculum, the way that we put it into practice, the way that we create our classroom communities instead of saying, you know, you have to work towards a level four to be the best. No, we are all learning. And there are several pathways to learning. Mm -hmm. It's not just about uh, saying, you know, this student is kinesthetic, they learn through moving, uh, so I'm going to cater my lesson to that. Okay, if you cater your lesson to that, are you also accepting an assessment that way? Mm. Do you know what I mean? There's a, again, there's a disconnect there. I teach them the way they learn, Absolutely. but do I test them the way that they mm-hmm. that I taught them, right? Because I've seen that. At the end of the day, they all write the same test or they all have the same culminating assignment. Mm -hmm. And that's where a student feels like, but I learned. And, you know, some students might express their learning orally. They might say it. But why is it extremely important that they all write it down? Do you know what I mean? Their, Their way of demonstrating their learning. Why does it have to be the same if their way of learning that learning is different. Moving on to biases. So have you ever had any experiences with either other teachers or students where you've seen certain internal or external biases play out in real life, whether that's a gender bias or a racial bias? So many. (laughs) (laughs) Um, For myself, um, no one can see me because they're listening, but I have a side shave and purpley pink hair and two nose piercings and... uh, (laughs) Before that, I had uh, every color of the rainbow of hair over the years, um, and before that, I had dreadlocks. Um, so I've definitely um, experienced all kinds of different generations, um, you know, speaking to me on the phone or emailing, and then they walk through the door and they do like a triple take, and they're like, "You're the teacher." Mm-hmm. You're. Or, you know, even this year I had someone say, so you're with Russell Music? (laughs) I'm like, I'm the owner. I'm the person you're speaking with Mm -hmm. and emailing and booking this whole event. And, you know, definitely um, experienced that on many levels. And they're surprised that I study classical music. And I think it's really great that um, over the years they get to know me. And eventually it's not even about that, you know. And they, they start to kind of, I see their eyes look at me and change as they they see what I have to offer their kids especially Mm -hmm. and um, I think it also teaches them and it also teaches their kids yeah I was just going to say I'm sure in doing that you serve as a role model to your students who have a really powerful visual image the thing that comes to top of mind right now is this um, documentary watch called The Empowerment Project by one of my mentors Sarah Moshman and in that she explores 
10 to 11 different women in different fields and totally breaks the stereotype of what it means to be a mathematician or a scientist or an artist. And I think like those role models and that change in visual image is so important. So that is probably very inspiring to your students. I hope so. Yeah. (laughs) Well, no one can see me, but (laughs) I wear the hijab and I know for a fact that that's I don't want to assume, but I just, I feel that uh, it's the first thing that people see when they look at me. Um, And it often takes a conversation or two for people to start seeing me outside of just, sorry, my my external appearance. I, people sometimes make assumptions and they open up to me about them later and they say, oh, when I first met you, I thought, you know, you were conservative and you had all these negative ideas about about people who are not Muslims. And for example, if someone that I'm working with is gay, they usually automatically assume that I'm against them or that uh, I'm judging them. And uh, when we talk, it's all about the work that we're doing. We never discuss our difference. It's empowering to see that what makes me different and what makes someone else different, what makes someone else different, that's what ends up bringing us together because we know the struggle of being looked at differently. We know the struggle of, of having a certain feature about us being the, the predominant thing that people see. And I, I always want people to, to just look at me for all the work that I'm doing, to look at the positive things without cherry-picking what they want to see. And I've never had, had it made clear to me, for example, <clears throat> sorry, that I was denied certain opportunities because of the way that I dress or because of the way that I look, but I don't know that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, my name is different, like it's Najwa Zabian. It's clearly a, a, a different name. Um, if it were to show up on a resume or if someone were to see me or interview me, they might not know the whole me and they might make assumptions and say, let's go with a safer bet, right? And, and reflecting on that as a teacher, I also reflect on that within my students as well. Um, I often have female Muslim students who wear the hijab and they're very aware of it. They don't deal with it the same way that I do. I'm at a point where I can have a conversation with someone. If someone were to say a negative comment to me, I know how to answer. But when I was 16, 17, even 19, for example, I had a man tell me on the city bus you know, you're in Canada, you don't have to dress like that. And then at 19, I sat in my seat and I burst into tears. I didn't know how to answer. Mm-hmm. So I just think, how do high school students deal with mm-hmm. that? Not just, not just female Muslim students, but any student who gets not just picked on, but gets hate speech because of what they look like or what they believe or how they mm-hmm. live their lives um, or their sexual orientation how do they feel and how do they deal with that and I think going back to our point about well-being that is the root being proactive being aware so teacher education is important Um, I am still in shock that not every uh, pre-service program like teachers college in Canada has a mandatory cultural sensitivity course or a mandatory equity and inclusive education course, that is always a prerequisite 
Why? I think that's very important. It's equally as important as um, educational psychology, for example, which mm-hmm. we all should take. Uh, if teachers who are coming into our classrooms have that awareness as something that's mandatory, just like we have accountability with marks, mm-hmm. you also have accountability with your knowledge and the way that you execute that knowledge within your classroom, that's, your, that's the place where change happens. What happened for us to define a normal to begin with, mm-hmm. right? Because that's what creates that different view. So if we change our definition of what normal is or... Uh, Abolish the word altogether. Exactly, yeah. right? Yeah. We're all normal. And if we say that we're all normal, we, we will stop using that word, right? Mm-hmm. So to go back to what created that definition will take us back to how we can get rid of that definition. That was amazing. I feel like you touched on so many yeah. things there. Yeah. It's not even despite, what I have written despite down. The, <laughs> despite the background noise of the dog. <laughs> I think we have to really have a mandatory course on human rights mm-hmm. in pre-service. When you deny people certain rights or when you are even making assumptions, that that has an impact on their health. Uh, Kiki Ojo, I'm not sure I'm saying her name correctly, but she's from the Ontario Association of Children's Aid Societies. Um, she talks about the four A's and I really like what she said, you know, like she said, she, she often says, we have to look back and assess our assumptions, raise our awareness, address accessibility, and then address accountability. So the, the, the starting point into assessing our assumptions is something that I think we all have to be doing it very mindfully in the field of education in order to really bring out change because we think we don't make assumptions but we do so we really have to I think be very cognizant of of those four A's and constantly be checking in with ourselves we often want to to solve the problems when they happen without preparing ourselves ahead of time Mm -hmm. or without preventing those problems from happening, right? So when you check your assumptions, awareness, accessibility, and then accountability, if we, if we really do go back to that assumptions piece, we probably wouldn't be dealing with so many of the issues that arise with time, right? Mm-hmm. So just like in my classroom, for example, when I build that sense of community within that first week and say we are all here <laughs> learning together, um, uh, when I ask my students about their, their preferences, what they want to learn, when I learn something about them, something that they like, something that they don't like. So I really like that uh, the four A's that you went over. It's the first time I hear it. So yeah, thank yeah you. me too. <laughs> so I wanted to chat a bit about bullying, and that's becoming a, a huge topic of discussion. What have you seen in school, and how, wh- how can we change our internal structures to address it better? Well, you see different types of interactions with kids and adults, yes. not necessarily bullying. Um, a frustration of mine is when people label everything bullying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think it there needs to be a differentiation between different types of interactions with kids. Um, and there's a lot out there about differences between being rude and mean and then bullying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people need to... I think it's great that there's awareness and people are learning a lot more about bullying and learning how to deal with it and to stand up for themselves and to stand up for their friends and their peers. Um, I think the most the key the key part of bullying is to be a self advocate for yourself and make sure you don't let it happen to you. But I do think it's important to decipher between the different types. 
so many people just label all kids who might have a bad day or maybe they didn't have breakfast that morning. They come from different households. They have different um, things going on in their life. So they're not necessarily a bully if they came to school in a bad mood and took it out on someone. They're being mean and they're being rude and they need to be called out on it. I agree with you 100% mm-hmm. because then it also loses meaning, right? Yeah. And then, yes, and then we it end gets up lost. It gets lost. And then, you, and then you don't really know... What what is even bullying anymore mm-hmm. and everything, and I absolutely agree with you. I was actually going to say in my experience that I've been teaching in nine years, I haven't really seen in my grade levels in my I haven't really seen bullying. I almost think like bullying is a consistent systemic attack on another person, and it's always there. Right, and it drives that person to a point of you know despair or the the person that. I've seen kids being mean. I'm very quick at thumbing it. Like, no, we're not mm-hmm. doing that here. But I, but the bullying that I, as far as I understand bullying, it's not really as common. I mean, we have to be very, our eyes have to be on it. And, mm-hmm. and I almost think, like, too, that when it does happen, it's usually related to systemic oppression. Yeah. So it happens against Muslim children or it happens against... Uh, children from the LGBTQ mm-hmm. community. In which case, is it the child that is being a bully or is it our society that is creating the environment for that mm-hmm. child to, to, that to of, yeah. you know, thrive on those assumptions? I think it's really the adults. Because children, ultimately, they learn by example mm-hmm. and they learn by observing and they are sponges. So really, when bullying comes up, I almost feel like screaming, is it really our children or mm-hmm. is it us? Mm-hmm. You know, that always, always stays with me. And I'm usually, because I really have yet to see a child in grade one who is a bully. Just from a mother's perspective, my kids will come home sometimes and say, so-and-so was bullying so-and-so at school. It comes down to teaching our kids when they're young Mm -hmm. how to view different situations and how to deal with those situations going forward. And I do think it comes... Um, mostly from adults. Many of the times, uh, you know, in the rush of a day, a teacher might, they might label something as bullying when it's not, but it's only because they have so many kids that they're dealing with. We're going back to the problem of numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's zero tolerance for bullying nowadays. And uh, it gets frustrating at a certain point, I think, for some teachers. I don't teach at the elementary level. I teach at the secondary level. But I can see that happening with that big number of students. Like if you have 30 kids in your class, it can be very hard to jump from problem to problem and say, you know, let's really understand what happened here. Let's go back and and think what are the reasons, you know, what happened at home last night. Within a day, it's almost impossible Mm -hmm. to get through all of that. But for me, thinking from an educator's perspective, I think that we need to uh, incorporate empathy into our curriculum. Being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes can be taught from a very young age. Mm -hmm. And I actually did research on this. Um, We are born empathetic. It's not something that... um, if you aren't surrounded in an environment where you see empathy that you don't initially have within you, you have it. But what we do over time, I think, not just as, as the school system, but I think society as a whole, is that we, we diminish that or we shame kids for feeling or for expressing their feelings. 
And over time, we grow into adulthood thinking that expressing my feelings is not a good thing. I have to show that I'm always in control and always strong. And mm-hmm. I think that's a huge, huge mistake. And it's, it's, it's a big reason why many of our kids... You know, they find uh, safety in in drugs or in in negative behaviors because that's the way for them to express their feelings in a different way. Uh, when you numb your feelings somehow, you seek that level of of challenge, something that makes you feel alive Mm -hmm. and that's how we lose so many of our children um so i think if we were to teach empathy from a young age and reward it not necessarily through you know physical rewards but noticing kindness in a kid saying you know thank you for doing that or if they smile at someone you know praise them for it absolutely things that are that simple like think at the kindergarten level a kid that you give a smiley face that just made their day right and if we not only focus on the early years with that if we build that into elementary and then into high school that would make such a drastic change uh, positively in education but again the word empathy it needs to be value if we want to reform something we have to think what is the true purpose of education What is it? Is it student achievement? Maybe part of it is, right? Maybe part of it is. But what? Achieving what? Marks? Or achieving values? Or achieving uh, self-confidence? Achieving your potential? Achieving uh, world change? We need to change that achievement piece. We need to change that goal of what education truly means. And if we say that we want to educate every student as a human being but in an educational economy where everyone is looking at your school board and saying where's your score where do you rank because we might come and that brings money or universities saying where are we taking students uh, which school boards are we taking students from then the conversation changes it's the players that are making the difference mm-hmm. talk about celebrating those excellence mm-hmm. And those children that show empathy and those children that do all those good deeds. And at our board, we have, um, which we just started actually with, within the last couple of years, is called a Beacon of Hope celebration. I don't mm-hmm. know if you're aware of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they are fantastic to yeah, be part mm-hmm. of. And, and we developed that as a board. So that's a leadership role, taking that on and, and taking that down to the mm-hmm. local level within the schools. But there's a student from each elementary or each school elementary and high school who is um a recipient of a beacon of hope award and we have breakfasts for those schools and that student is brought up in front of an audience Mm -hmm. and talked about by the teacher or the principal about all the things you just talked about showing Mm -hmm. empathy celebrating something above their mark to reform education you have to start thinking of education as a system an Mm -hmm. ecosystem and not not just reform the classroom right Mm -hmm to reform the minds of the people who are in leadership is very important. And that's actually happening in our board. I, I really see it. And it's made a huge impact in my life as a teacher. Simple things in the classroom that I can draw back from my own experience. Like, you know, in my classroom, we do, we, I, I really put into place put-ups. Okay, every morning we do at least four or five put-ups where, you know, the kids draw their names and they give each other a put-up. One thing that I noticed really clearly is gender bias. They come... Gender, gender bias is present as early as kindergarten mm-hmm. and grade one. Like, so uh, I've had 
in the last nine years that I've been teaching, I've had students in grade one say, oh, that book is for girls only. You don't want to read that book. Mm-hmm. And that's something that in week one, we we get it out of our systems, you know, and that kids are very trusting and they trust you when you say, no, you know what? This book is actually for everybody. Mm-hmm. Anyone can read it. And he's going to read it on my special chair. So yeah. just, because you were, just because you were brave yeah. to, to even dare to think that you could read that book and then you knew it would... You're going to now read it on my rocking chair. You take the rocking chair, she read it. And you change the conversation and you change the power dynamics, right? So when we do when we do calendars, for example, um, and, you know, this person does the weather graph and then the other person does the actual calendar, the, the other person asks questions. In my classroom, it's always a pattern. A boy has to pick a girl. A girl has to pick a boy. A boy has to pick a girl. Mm-hmm. So that they, they, they don't build the cliques of boys only, girls only, and then mm-hmm. they only choose... They know that they have to choose a girl. They know that the girl will choose a boy. And it's usually how it rolls. Even when we sit in the circle, they know they have to sit boy, girl, boy, girl, so that we can really start breaking down those stereotypes and that we are there for everybody. There are two um, more topics that I'd love to kind of touch on and explore. So one is the concept of choice. It was maybe like a year and a half ago, I visited the Bricolage Academy in New Orleans, um, and they're deemed one of those new age schools with a very new... Um, cutting edge sort of curriculum and process and structure. And as I was kind of looking at the children's calendars and schedules, I noticed that they all had this time allocated, which was called choice time. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was basically an hour in the middle of their day where they have the complete autonomy around how they want to use that time. They can use it to catch up on sleep or to work or read a book. So I'd love to hear insights on the role of choice plays at that age. I think that's so powerful and I think it's so healing and I think that um, all of the things that we were just talking about uh, with bullying, um, most of the time, it's that if someone's angry, even as an adult, it's because they're not getting something that they want or that they need or they feel like they're not being heard. Mm -hmm. And to give them that opportunity to have a choice in what they do, um, to express themselves and, and feel proud in that moment also outlets Mm -hmm. so for me mine was music yeah Um, my best friend it was art for some kids it's sports but having more choice time to really get what you want out of life I feel very lucky that I get to be that choice time for that child like I would have assumed that a child at that age given a free hour would just like play or chat with your friends or have some fun but they all took it really seriously and were actually doing things that contributed to their um, development which I thought was really amazing without being told to do it and without being graded yeah so that was a really interesting um, insight well if you look at the way that education is structured in terms of the school day it's only been around for probably a century or so, Mm -hmm. the way that we divide students based on age and you go to the classroom and you learn certain subjects for a certain part of the day has only been around for not too long relatively if we look through history. Mm -hmm. So we're assuming that this is the best way for students to learn. But if you think of the time before that throughout the, the years, whenever someone wanted to learn about something, so say a person wanted to learn medicine, they sought the best doctor and learned from that expert right on their own time they could have spent the whole day learning right so learning isn't just about sitting in the classroom and learning that content even that content that we teach we know for a fact that kids do not remember the content they don't remember it they remember 
the bigger lessons that they learned. They remember the skills that they learned. They remember, you know, amazing, exciting things that happened while they were learning. But our assumption that the best way for a student to learn is from, you know, 9 or 9.30 to 4, 4.30 with those increments of 45 minutes or an hour, 75 minutes, whatever it is, that's the way we see it. Mm -hmm. That's how we were taught. So we think it's the right way. But again, giving that space, that choice is wouldn't have been foreign a mm-hmm. uh, hundred years or so ago, Absolutely. right? Now it is because we're not used to it, but it's needed. And I, don't, I think we shouldn't be afraid to make that change. I think it's a fantastic idea. Yeah. It would also be helpful for the teacher, oh, yeah. I would assume, because yeah. then you get to see what different kids would gravitate to and you could maybe see how they would be different learners would help you in, in your role as a exactly. teacher as well. Um, but I also think that our curriculum is getting old very fast. Yeah. Because the technology is advancing so much, we're in a big transition moment historically. And I, I don't think we, we're even aware of how much change we're going through so fast. Yeah. So there's a part of me that, like, yeah, I think all of those ideas are amazing and I try as much as I can to apply, but I'm still tied to a curriculum that is aging. Yeah. However, I'm still accountable to that curriculum and I'm still part of that system and I'm trying to be a key player in how we can promote those changes in a way that also, at the end of the day, it's important to have a system. Like if you don't have a system, it all collapses Mm -hmm. and it becomes, you know, it becomes chaotic. We need some kind of system. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important now to navigate so smartly because we can't let systems fall or before we have something really smart and fluid. Well, that's where we go back to how everyone has plays a role. Absolutely. You have to look at all of the stakeholders. So whoever is putting the curriculum in place or putting the accountability aspects in place, those need to be changing as well. They can't stay the same. They have to change with the change of time. So you as a teacher might know all of this, but you won't be able to execute it if the decision doesn't come from Absolutely. above you, right? Because you need to feel supported and you need to be able to do that without feeling like, my kids are wasting an hour that they could be learning something yeah. from the curriculum that I could be marking them on and entering that mark, right? The culture of um, growth mindset, which is so mm-hmm. important in education right now. And again, that was being applicable to students only. And I kept pushing and saying, but if we're going to teach kids how to have a growth mindset, I need to be I need to be made safe to make mistakes as well. Because mm-hmm. if I don't show them how to grow and how to be a learner, how can I teach them that it's okay to make mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. I, it, in this whole conversation, like I kept thinking back at Nel, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's um, an astrophysicist. And, and he always says, you know, you, you, he said, I think we need to fix the adults. Like you fix the adults and the kids will be fine, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and because people keep saying like putting all this onus of change on children. Children are innovators, They are are already Mm -hmm. thinking in terms of change. It's the adults, it's the relationship that we have with time and the relationship that we have with how we look at our roles, again, as leaders, as parents, as educators, Mm -hmm. how much room we give to those children to be innovators, how much space Mm -hmm. are we holding so that they can then grow and, and thrive, right? And I really do think that it's really about the stakeholders at the top making space Mm -hmm. for the young teachers that are coming through to hear their voices 
you know, so many of our committees don't involve new teachers. And I think that's a mistake. Teachers are getting burnt out before they get to that yeah. point. Mm-hmm. Right? right. Just trying to get a job. Yeah. Right. If we have a fixed mindset, then we are not going to be open to our kids having a growth mindset. It's just a term then. It's mm-hmm. not really something that we're fully executing. And I think that mistakes made at our level are much more glorified than mistakes made at the level of a student, right? So that's why we're so scared of having that growth mindset. Yeah, it's amazing how so many of these insights can be applied to the corporate world too, like the whole growth mindset um, and just like keeping the curiosity alive in the, in, in the corporate world without having to apologize for it or... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, these are really great insights. So I'd love to hear more about, um, you know, like gender amongst, um, educators and what that looks like. One interesting observation that I was, was thinking about as you were talking is Mm -hmm. that it's usually those in positions of leadership that are males, like principals and vice principals and superintendents. I think it's mostly males, not just, I'm not just reflecting on my board, um, several other boards. I think males tend to uh, work towards those positions of leadership more eagerly because, uh, I don't know, maybe it's a they want to be in a power position or they're just driven and they have the luxury of not having to have children and stay at home and all of that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Last I checked at Code, and I'm not talking principals, I'm talking directors in all of mm-hmm. Ontario, it was a 60-40 rate. Like, there were 60% male directors in Ontario and 40% female directors in Ontario, which is a really amazing rate. Yeah. Now, that was a few years ago, maybe two years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very, very different in our industry and in education than it is anywhere else. Because I came to those numbers because of, of a document that leaked in the Harper government a few years ago mm-hmm. that showed female leadership uh, in different industries. And the numbers were dismal. I think the best one was like 5% in... Um, it's horrible. It was, it was horrible. I still yeah. have a document. I can, yeah. I can send it to you. But it didn't talk about education. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of why I started looking at female leadership in education because I knew that the numbers were higher in education. And I wanted to understand why. Mm-hmm. Like what was working in education that wasn't working in other sectors of society that allowed for more women to get into positions of power and leadership that it wasn't happening in... And you know... The weirdest thing is I came across a lot of, like, obviously education has more female leaders. It's like, well, not obvious. Like, there must be a pattern. Like, everything in this world has a pattern. Like, everything has reasons. And if we can track the reasons and we can figure out patterns, right? Like, Absolutely. So what are the patterns? Um, and what I did come across is that, and the reason why you see so much of what we're talking about apply to your reality mm-hmm. is because education is one of the industries that really is about uh, humans. Yeah. It's about human paradigms. There are some really amazing men out there doing some yes. pretty awesome work. And I really like to honor that just mm-hmm. because being someone who does study female leadership, sometimes people take that, take it the wrong way. Absolutely. And that's not at all. They they were busy tonight. Yeah. <laughs> no, they, I, I invited three really amazing educators. I did. And they were all involved <laughs> for other conferences. <laughs> okay. We'll end off with one thing you find really rewarding about being in the education sector. This way. (laughs) (laughs) My role as a trustee, the most rewarding part for me is being invited to the schools and being able to see what happens in the classroom and the positive uh, 
impact those teachers and principals are having on those students. I was going to say, to me, it, it's love. It, it really reminds me of what is important in this life. And it just keeps me grounded and connected to what really matters. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it's uh, just shaking things up and, and giving my students um, a sense of power and control in their lives and, and giving them complete freedom of choice to be exactly who they are mm-hmm. um, and remind them that it's okay to just be you and, um, and lead by example in uh, making them feel safe to explore who they are and um, I love watching their eyes light up when yeah. they, they really <laughs> find something that's them that's a passion Absolutely. and I love, I love nurturing that light. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. To me, the most uh, rewarding thing is, uh, it stems from my belief that students are the change makers in the world. They mm-hmm. are our future. Uh, they're so raw and in touch with their emotions and with what really matters in the world. They're, so, they're very easy to reach. And just seeing their creativity and their their willingness to make mistakes and learn from their mistakes, their willingness to look at others and accept them, not only accept them, but respect them Mm -hmm. for who they are, is so inspiring. And it keeps reminding me that there's someone's life that you can change. How was that for episode three of the Dialogue Exchange podcast? Thank you for listening. We hope you learned something new or different in today's episode and that you take back something practicable to your day-to-day. The truth is we're all in education forever. At some point, we've been a teacher to someone or we will be, or we've been a student. So today, I challenge you to think about what you're doing to be a part of the reform. I'm personally going to make sure that I keep my curiosity alive despite the odds as a student, and I encourage that trait in younger children I mentor. Moving on to events. So we promised we'd share some awesome events in the Kitchener-Waterloo region that relate to our episode topics. So here we are. I've got two amazing event announcements. And for those outside of KW, you can still send us announcements. We'd love to share them. um, And we promise it will come to you soon. So the first event is by Lean In Kitchener-Waterloo's chapter. Um, They're hosting an unconscious bias discussion, which is happening on Friday, May 26th at 12 p.m. to 2 p.m. at the Tannery in Kitchener. You can check out their Facebook page for more information. Event number two, our friends at Lutherwood are hosting a walkathon called Steps for Kids on 285 Benjamin Road on May 7th, and it aims to break down the stigma of mental illness for youth. This is a walk you don't want to miss, and Lutherwood are an incredible organization who constantly do a lot of work um, with children and in the mental health space. We'll talk again on May 30th for episode four. As always, make sure to like, comment, share, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at at TD Exchange. Let's get a conversation going and we'll talk soon.